Katie, one more time. Thank you. Thank you, Steph. Good to be with you all this morning. Wish it was under different circumstances. I was actually planning to be here anyways. We were going to do a preacher swap, and it just turned out uh, God had more in mind. So uh, I am excited to be here. Lots of mixed emotions this morning, obviously, to see uh, your truck and every contents of your church's equipment roll away the, uh, down the alley. It was a little bit jarring this morning, but... I think God's got something to say to our communities, both in this text and what happened this morning. So I'm excited to, to preach. I'm going to continue this series called Lenses that you guys have been doing. We're actually uh, following along with you guys and co-creating these sermon series with you this year. Um, and we're trying, as you all are, uh, to read the New Testament in the year. True confessions, I'm still like in the end of Matthew. So I did read the text we're going to preach on this morning, but... Um, <laughs> I'm a little behind, so there's grace for us uh, who are lagging behind. No, I'm just excited to, to be here uh, this morning. Things are going awesome at North City. We, we're in the stage where we're discovering the community that God is creating in front of our eyes. Um, we really are desperate for the Holy, Holy Spirit's leadership uh, in who we're becoming as a church. And I, I would encourage you to come hang out with us on a Sunday. Uh, we may or may not have equipment next Sunday, um, but come hang out with us. Um, next week, we're actually planning on doing bagels and Bible. So if you want to come check out what that is, at least we'll have bagels. Um, no, I'm stoked to be here with you all. Um, I'm just going to pray um, as, before we jump into the text and what we did. I know we just prayed, but I think even maybe just for my frazzled nerves, it would be good to pray again. So would you join with me in just welcoming uh, the Spirit into what we're doing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I just want to pause and give this time to you. With uh, the crazy morning I had, North City people had, uh, here we are. Uh, just churches, despite our equipment being in hand or not. Our churches aren't defined by the things that are in trailers, but the people who make up the church following and responding to your Holy Spirit, God. That's what we want to do together in the next few minutes we have this morning, God. As we look at your story, God, may we stay focused on who you are. And God, I just want to pray for the man or woman who stole the truck and trailer, God. I don't think they knew that we're loving our enemies. So, uh, God, we love them. Whatever piece of brokenness exists in their life that compelled them to do that, we know that you can restore it. We know you've got grace for it. We know that you have love uh, to give them, and I pray, God, that they find it. In Jesus' name, amen. So when's the last time you asked yourself or maybe thought to yourself, actually, this is a weird question because you just asked yourself this question, what does it mean to be successful? Have you ever asked yourself that question, am I being successful? It's this kind of slippery term, success, in, in, in our world. I feel like we live in a success-rich world. And we're always asking, am I successful? Am I measuring up? So I, I've been doing some research on future church stuff, and I, I really like uh, the stuff that the Barna Group does. Check it out sometime if you want. Uh, and they're doing a lot of research on, the, on young Christians and how they're interacting with the church. And incidentally, one of the questions they ask them is, how confident are you that you will be famous one day? And I don't know why they ask that question, 
but it came up and I was reading the research and 26% of people under 18 are highly confident that they will be famous. <laughs> so, <laughs> also, um, it was something like in the top five of aspirational careers is YouTuber. So, here's the thing, we laugh. But I want you to know that's a product of the culture we live in. That, that, that's funny. And I laughed out loud, literally, LOL, when I read it. But at the same time, this sort of, my heart sank after that. Because I'm like, what sort of world are we living in where these people have to be convinced that they will be famous in the time of life that they're forming their identity? Uh, author that I really appreciate uh, mentions this about our sort of success culture. He says, beneath all of the great accomplishments of our time, there is a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the great aspirations of our society, the loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and the deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. We're having this conversation these past few weeks about lenses, that maybe the way that we look at our lives in the world, Jesus wants to challenge or invite us to look at them differently. And I want to just submit to you this morning that the way that we look at our lives through the lens of success maybe needs to be challenged. Maybe needs to be looked at and examined, to use another uh, optomical, what's the word, uh, eye metaphor. So I want to submit to you this morning, what does Jesus have to say about our success culture? Did he experience some of the same temptations we grow up experiencing? Does he encounter or... Uh, 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 encounter or face any of the scripts that we carry with us about how we value who we are based on what we do and accomplish. What do we do? If we have scripts in our life that are telling us to value ourselves based on certain things or ideas of success we have, what challenge does Jesus have to offer that this morning? And so that's what we're going to look at. I would love to look at uh, Luke chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bible, I'm not going to quite get there yet, but you can get ready. I want to look at a chapter of Jesus' life, a young part in his ministry. He's about 30 years old, so about as old as I am. And he's about to just launch his ministry. And he launches his ministry in this kind of three-part step. It goes baptism, temptation, and then mission. Before we jump into the text, if you don't know anything about the Gospel of Luke, I'd encourage you to go to thebibleproject.org. They have these great summary videos on each of the books of the Bible, and check out the context of what's different about this book. I think one thing I want to point out to you is this is uh, an author of the Gospels uh, who's writing to both a Jewish and a Greek audience, and writing at a time where these young Christians who have been converted, converted to this new way of following this Jesus that many of them probably never met, are trying to figure out what this guy is like and the way that he lived and how it should shape their lives. Uh, the book is addressed to a person that's probably not a real person, but the person is Theophilus. And Theophilus is just Greek for someone who loves God. That's what the words mean, love, lover of God or follower of God. 
And it strikes me in our mission statements, yours is to love your community in the name of Jesus. Ours is, you know, new and flashy and nuanced, and it's loving our neighbors in the way of Jesus. So we would learn from you all to call old things new things and call them new. Like, I know this church that does Sunday school, and they call it equipping hour. It's, it's awesome. That's your church, by the way. Um, no, but what does this mean for us as a community that's called to follow the way of Jesus or live in the name of Jesus? These people who Luke wrote this book to are asking the same question, and they're both looking to Jesus for the words that he said, the things he accomplished, but the way in which he went about them. Because in that, they find the way that they are following God, the way that they are following Jesus, the way they're called to live. So I just want to hit these three parts of his, like I said, a three-part launch of his mission. So the first thing we encounter in the end of chapter three, and I'll just kind of go through these. You don't have to find them in your text. The first thing that we see happen at the launch of Jesus's ministry is his baptism. He's baptized in the Jordan River. And this amazing thing happens. The whole, it says the Holy Spirit descends like a dove onto Jesus. And this voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. That's the beginning of Jesus's ministry. And then in Luke, he decides to throw this huge genealogy in there. So you kind of got to read through the Old Testament names. But the next thing that happens, it says that the spirit, uh, it says, uh, starting in chapter four, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan. So right after his baptism and was led by the spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days, not four, 40 days, he was tempted by the devil. And just so if you were wondering, it says, and he had nothing to eat while he was there. So the next thing that happens is this temptation. And I don't want to go through it line to line because I want to focus on the last part. But there's this book called, and this phrase should mean something to you, In the Name of Jesus by this author, Henry Nowen. And he summarizes what happens next to Jesus by saying he gets tempted in three different ways. And, and the devil tempts him in three different ways. He says, turn this stone into bread. And he takes him and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, this all can be yours. I can give you the power and the splendor of all of this if you just bow a knee to me. And then he takes this weird, he does this weird thing and he takes him on the top of this high temple and he says, throw yourself off. And then he quotes scripture. And he says, because if you're really the Messiah, the angels will come and save you before you fall on the ground. And to a modern listener, we're like, those are some weird things. Like, what, what's really being tempted in that? And I think Nowen's summation is really good. He says, primarily the temptations of Jesus and the temptations we experience are about three things. The first thing is we're tempted to be relevant. And I think what he means by this is we're tempted to be self-sufficient. We're tempted to be people of means. People who can figure our ways out of situations ourselves. We're tempted to be relevant, to figure it out ourselves. The second thing is we're tempted to be spectacular. We're tempted to do these grandiose things. We're tempted uh, in this especially digital age to pursue applause in our life. Our, our actions and our behaviors and our pursuits are for likes and follows, if you will, in our life. The next thing he says that Jesus is tempted to do is to be powerful. 
Again, he, he has them do this display of jumping off the roof. He shows them these kingdoms of the earth. And he says, you can rule all these kingdoms if you bow to me. And we in our life are constantly tempted to seek leverage and power in our relationships. So we can define, our, define ourselves and our value against what sort of power we hold other people. Power, he says, offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier or to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. These are the temptations that Jesus faces, and of course, he rejects them all. He quotes scripture back to the devil, and he resists the devil's temptation. And he comes out of the wilderness and finds a Chick-fil-A like right away. <laughs> Just kidding. But he goes home, and he eats. And the next thing that happens in scripture is what I want to focus on this morning, and what I want to read with you. And basically, Jesus goes to a synagogue and proclaims his mission statement, proclaims what he's going to be about, proclaims his way of life. So this is the scripture I want to read with you this morning. So let's jump in in uh, in verse 14 of chapter 4. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled it and found a place where it is written. And then he quoted it and exclaimed, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners or captives and recovery of sight for the blind. He is to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled the scroll up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I think that's the equivalent to a first century mic drop. Now, what is Jesus trying to communicate about what he's going to be about? What is Jesus trying to communicate about his way? When he's been tempted, just been tempted with all of these things to be relevant, to be spectacular, to be powerful, how is this different? The first thing you've got to understand is that this is the text from Isaiah. And Isaiah is a really important book to the Hebrew people and the people of his time because in that book, it tells the story of them being in exile meaning that they were outcast from their homeland, outcast from Jerusalem, and in captivity themselves uh, under the rule, oppressive rule of the, the power of Babylon in that time. And why that occurred is that they were not following God's way. That their society, their neighborhoods, their relationships had gone all sideways and into disarray. And the very things that Isaiah points out for the rationale why these things have gone sideways are the very things that I think the devil tempts Jesus with. They wanted to be relevant. 
They wanted to do things themselves. They wanted to be spectacular like the other kingdoms of the earth, and they started to act like that. They wanted to be powerful, and the leaders among them started to oppress widows and orphans. It names it. It calls them out, and this scripture actually is a mashup of different texts, and I guess Jesus can do that. He can just mash texts up when he wants to, when he's quoting them. It's probably more likely that he gave a whole lengthy sermon on the text, but this is a mashup between uh, chapter 58 and 61, where there's this hopeful uh, word about someone who's coming that will restore things to the way they ought to be. This someone will be a Messiah who will be God himself acting in such a way to restore God's order and leadership in the world. And what Jesus is saying when he's saying this today has been fulfilled in your presence is he's saying, I'm that guy. And that time when God is going to come back and restore all things is going to come to its fullest right now. So let's dive into what he actually says. What is the mission that Jesus says? In the text, it says things like, Good news for the poor, freedom for prisoners and oppressed, recovery of sight for the blind. And then it says this phrase, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is also referenced as the year of Jubilee. And if you've heard this term before, it's sort of this funky expectation or this practice where like every seven years or a certain set of years, there would be just ridiculous generosity and forgiveness amongst the Israelite community. There's this day where people who had debts, who were maybe even in prison for debts, were let go and let free. People who had sold their land to buy stuff were given their land back. So it's not just an economic uh, reset, but it's this idea, this picture of God's forgiveness through the land. And this is what Jesus says that he's about. And to our modern ears, this is like, this is great. This is a Great to put on a business card maybe, but what, what in the world does this mean? Like, What does it mean to speak good news to the poor? What does it mean to set prisoners free? Like, Should we all get up and go to the jail right now and do that? What does it mean to set the oppressed free? What does this look like in our modern day? And I was thinking about this. I think the best way to understand this is in juxtaposition or right up against the temptations that the devil uh, tempts Jesus with. To think about this in contrast Jesus' mission with what he was just tempted to do. So picture this. Picture, uh, picture that you're sitting down and with two different life coaches. And you're paying them to give you a plan for your life. And you're saying, what are the moves that I should make next? Okay? We've been using the language of lenses. So maybe you can think about them as, as two different lenses. I actually had lenses that I was going to bring, but they're no longer with me. So thank you, Kara Doten, for supplying at least one of the lenses. So just picture my glasses as the other lens, right? One consultant says to you, the first step you need to do is to be relevant. To be relevant. To show that you have what it takes to tackle every problem in your life. The second consultant says to you, you should have solidarity with the poor. You should have solidarity with the poor. You see, that's what Jesus is mentioning when he says good news to the poor. This idea of good news is a Roman concept where someone would come into the town and announce something that's, that's changed, that would change their life forever. And it's this ushering in of relationship with the poor. And Jesus in his own life is always befriending the poor. 
Jesus has a horrible network, a, a relational cap, capital networking plan. Just horrible. Like he's hanging out with all the wrong people. He's always finding in himself in relationship with people who are outsiders, who are on the margins. He hangs with the powerful people, but he always offends them. Do you see the contrasts in these PR strategies? Do you see the contrasts in these success strategies? Maybe the next thing he would say to you is this uh, person represented in the temptation lens would say, you need to be spectacular. Your Instagram feed, man, needs to be something else. You know how many people live in anxiety of posting anything on any feed because they feel they should be there? Now, the other end, uh, this person might say, you need to be real. This recovery of sight to the blind thing, Jesus literally recovered people's sight, but it was always to point to something bigger. When he healed people's blindness, he was making a point about being able to see reality, to see the truer nature of things. It strikes me how often we're tempted to be something that we're not, instead of just being honest and open with what we are. Jesus is always leading us into honesty with our everyday ordinary lives. Reality is often the enemy of the spectacular. Honesty, vulnerability, real talk are the antidote to the crippling pressure to be perfect in this life. I think this is what our young people are feeling all the time. They feel this crippling pressure to be perfect. I'm, millennial, I'm a millennial, so I grew up in the generation where my parents indirectly communicated and the other people around me, be whatever you want to be. The indirect communication, that was the direct communication. The indirect communication was just be really good at it. Be spectacular at it, right? Have you grown up with that script? Brene Brown, who has really influenced me a lot, puts it this way. She talks about What's behind this, this desire to be spectacular is this idea of fear of the ordinary. She says the overwhelming message in our culture today is that the ordinary life is a meaningful, meaningless life. Use, uh, is, life is a meaningless life, useless. You, can, you are grabbing a lot of it, unless you are grabbing a lot of attention. It's been, it's been a morning. Unless you are grabbing a lot of attention, and you have lots of Twitter followers and Facebook fans who know everything, or, or, or who know everything you know. I use a shame-based fear of being ordinary as my definition of narcissism. I definitely see it in a younger generations where people fear that they are not big enough. No matter how happy or fulfilling their small, quiet life is, they feel it most they feel it most not it must not mean very much because it is not the way people are measuring success and then bluntly she says which is just terrifying it's amazing how much in my life i'm drawn to do something spectacular and i miss what's right in front of my face i am blind to the joy and the love that's right in front of my face let me just tell you this quick story. Can we have a real-life example right now? I've known some of you for like 20 minutes, so let's be real. So right now in my life, I, all the pastors of all of our churches are bivocational. So I'm in like my side gigs in a little flux. So I'm, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, so immediately I start thinking of all the things that I can do. 
And I'm like, oh, I've got, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to do this. I've got funding for that. Let's try this. And Christian Ann's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Christian Ann's my wife. She's like, what if you were to be dad for a day instead of trying whatever the new thing is this week that you want to try? I was like, man. And then what happened in my mind is I was tempted to put on these lenses. And all the scripts that I've grown up with as a man who has to define his significance with what he's accomplishing in the world came up and reared their ugly head. And I was dismissive. And then it flashed in front of my eyes how much time I waste in the day daydreaming about schemes to accomplish more things in the world when my beautiful children are playing right in front of me. So I'm not quite sure what will happen yet other than I'm going to choose them. And that's a small example, but a lot of you have been there. A lot of you are facing children coming into your home and thinking about what this means for your career and all these scripts about what it means to be successful are running through your mind. And I want to tell you that Jesus has a different lens for you. Jesus says the kingdom of God is for these little ones. The kingdom of God is, poor, is for the poor. He says in the first thing he says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor before, because they will inherit the kingdom of God. We have to have different lenses for looking at what success and meaning looks like in our life. The last one, this idea of captives being set free, of prisoners being set free, the oppressed being set free, and the year of the Lord, Lord's favor is about the pursuit of freedom in others' lives. I don't know how many term, times I've heard the term financial freedom. Have you heard that term? Like it's some goal to make tons of money so you're not responsible or like don't have to be beholden to anyone for the finances in your life. Basically, there's this persuasive idea that you should never have to need in your life. You should be so powerful that you shouldn't have to be interdependent with anyone. And Jesus is saying exactly the opposite there. He said, I've rejected the pursuit of power so that I can pursue the empowerment of others. What if you were 60, 70 at the end of your life looking at your career? Do you want to be one who says, I'm counting the people I had power over or I'm counting the people who I empowered? Which do you want to be counting at the end of your days? I think if we're going to follow Jesus' mission, we have to take seriously that the lens he wants to put us, us to put on is not viewing others' relationship to us as a way to gain more power, but as a way to empower the other. So this is great, this great contrast of Jesus' mission and temptation. Maybe you can resonate with this. Maybe you're kind of squirming in your seat because you've lived under the oppression of the idea of being relevant, spectacular, and powerful as the only means of, ident uh, uh, of your identity. What does this mean for us every day? How do we pursue this? And I have a somewhat mixed message for you. Pursuing the way of Jesus, you just can't. You can't do it by yourself. Maybe you missed the, maybe the most significant character in all three of these stories. At Jesus' baptism, he's not alone. The Holy Spirit's there. And he says, this is my son, whom I love, and whom I'm well pleased. Who leads Jesus into the desert and sustains him when he's there? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
And what are the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he preaches this text? The Spirit of the Lord is on me and anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You can't do this without the Holy Spirit. North City, Mill City, we can't do this without the Holy Spirit. I think maybe North City, Jesus is trying to tell us this morning, even when we don't have our trailer, we can't do this without the Holy Spirit. The only way that we can put on the lens of solidarity with the poor, about being radically honest with our lives and pursuing the empowerment of others instead of our self-empowerment is through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because guess what? The love of the poor, the pursuit of being radically honest, empowering others can all be means for relevance, to be spectacular and to be powerful in some twisted way. They can become selfish ends in and of themselves if we aren't listening to the Holy Spirit's direction in our lives. Simply put, people who live and love in the name and the way of Jesus are willing to give power in their lives over to the Holy Spirit in faith that life is better that way. For them and for their neighbors. Paul puts it this way. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is true freedom. You might be sitting here going, like, I've never thought of my life and how I form my identity in the ways that you're talking about this morning. In fact, I've lived under the tyranny of just trying to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful, and I'm dying inside. Maybe that's you this morning. What I want to say to you this morning is that the most important thing that you can hear from the Holy Spirit is the words that he spoke over Jesus when he was baptized. I've been trying to listen to the Holy Spirit for a while in my life, and it seems to me at the end of the day what the Spirit is always trying to get me to believe is that I am a son of God, that I'm a child of God, that he loves me, and that he's already pleased with me because of what Christ has done. And it's only out of that place that you can resist the temptation that our world throws at you every minute, every time you pull out the phone, to be relevant, spectacular, and powerful. The only way our communities can truly love our community and our neighborhoods in the way, in the name of Jesus, is to believe that we're God's children, that our identity is already formed in him, and that he's already pleased with us. And then we can go about the business of joining with the Holy Spirit to renew this city. Because it's not going to be about us. It's going to be about empowering others. It's going to be about re- being real and honest with what we struggle with in front of people so that they can see the grace of God come true in our lives. It's about not just giving to the poor or having charity, but knowing the poor having the experience of being with the poor, being poor ourselves. Because Jesus says that's where the kingdom of God lives. Mill City, North City, do we want to be those kind of communities? Do we want to chuck the script that's given to us and live into the script that Jesus lived into? I want to invite the band to come up. I'm going to pray. Then Michael's going to lead us in communion. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, We can't do this alone. 
God, I pray just this morning it's coming to mind if there's someone who's living in the midst of self-loathing because they haven't, because they've perceived that they haven't lived up to the standards of success that they've either given themselves or that's been handed to them. God, I pray that they would encounter you, that they would encounter those words. That you, are, you love them as your children, that you're already pleased with them. God, and would you give our communities the confidence to live out of that identity, to be desperate for the leadership of your Holy Spirit so that we can see the year of your favor, God, so we can see the kingdom come in our communities. We love you and we trust you to accomplish this. In Jesus' name, amen.